Welcome to this Uvula audio presentation of Thomas Merton's The Seven-Story Mountain. Volume 16, Book 3, Chapter 4, The Sweet Savor of Liberty. The monastery is a school, a school in which we learn from God how to be happy. Our happiness consists in sharing the happiness of God, the perfection of his unlimited freedom. The perfection of his love. What has to be healed in us is our true nature, made in the likeness of God. What we have to learn is love, the healing and the learning of the same thing. For at the very core of our essence we are constituted in God's likeness by our freedom. And the exercise of that freedom is nothing else but the exercise of disinterested love, the love of God for his own sake, because he is God. The beginning of love is truth, and before he will give us his love, God must cleanse our souls of the lies that are in them, and the most effective way of detaching us from ourselves is to make us detest ourselves as we have made ourselves by sin, in order that we may love him reflected in our souls as he has remade them by his love. That's the meaning of the contemplative life, and the sense of all the apparently meaningless little rules and observances and fasts and obediences and penances and humiliations and labors that go to make up the routine of existence in the contemplative monastery. They all serve to remind us of what we are and who God is, that we may get sick of the sight of ourselves and turn to him. And in the end, we will find him in ourselves, in our own purified natures, which have become the mirror of his tremendous goodness and of his endless love. Part 2 So Brother Matthew locked the gate behind me, and I was enclosed in the four walls of my new freedom. And it was appropriate that the beginning of freedom should be as it was, for I entered a garden that was dead and stripped and bare. The flowers that had been there last April were all gone, and the sun was hidden behind low clouds, and an icy wind was blowing over the gray grass and the concrete walls. In a sense, my freedom had already begun, for I minded none of these things. I did not come to Gethsemane for the flowers or for the climate, although I admit that Kentucky winters were a disappointment. Still, I had not had time to plan on any kind of a climate. I had been too busy with the crucially important problem of finding out God's will, and that problem was still not entirely settled. There still remained the final answer. Would I be accepted into this monastery? Would they take me into the novitiate to become a Cistercian? Father Joaquin, the guest master, came out the door of the monastery and crossed the garden with his hands under his scapular and his eyes fixed on the cement walk. He only raised them when he was near me, and then he grinned. Oh, it's you! he said. I suppose he'd been doing some praying for me, too. I didn't get a chance to ask him if I had come to stay. I said, yes, father. This time I want to be a novice, if I can. He just smiled. He went into the house. The place seemed very empty. I put the suitcase down in the room that had been assigned to me and hastened to the church. If I expected any grand welcome from Christ and his angels, I didn't get it. Not in the sensible order. 
The huge nave was like a tomb, and the building was as cold as ice. However, I did not mind, nor was I upset by the fact that nothing special came into my head in the way of a prayer. I just knelt there more or less dumb and listened to the saw down at the sawmill fill the air with long and strident complaints and the sound of labor. That evening at supper, I found that there was another postulant, an ancient, toothless, gray-haired man hunched up in a huge sweater. He was a farmer from the neighborhood who had lived in the shadow of the abbey for years and had finally made up his mind to enter it as a lay brother. However, he did not stay. The next day I found out that there was still a third postulant. He arrived that morning. He was a fat, bewildered youth from Buffalo. Like myself, he was applying for the choir. Father Joaquim put the two of us to work together, washing dishes and waxing floors in silence. We were both absorbed in our own many thoughts, and I dare say he was no more tempted to start a conversation than I was. In fact, every minute of the day, I was secretly congratulating myself that conversations were over and done with, provided always that I was accepted. I could not be quite sure whether someone would call me and tell me to go down for an interview with the Father Abbot, or whether I was expected to go down to him on my own initiative. But that part of the problem was settled for me toward the end of the morning work. I went back to my room and started puzzling my head over the copy of the spiritual directory that Father Joaquim had brought me. Instead of settling down quietly and reading the chapter that directly concerned me, the one that said what postulates were supposed to do while they were waiting in the guest house, I started leafing through the two thin volumes to see if I could not discover something absolutely clear and definite as to what the Cistercian vocation was all about. It is easy enough to say, Trappists are called to lead lives of prayer and penance, because, after all, there is a sense in which everybody is called to lead that kind of life. It's also easy enough to say that Cistercians are called to devote themselves entirely to contemplation without any regard for the works of the active life, but that does not say anything precise about the object of our life, and it certainly does not distinguish the Trappists from any of the other so-called contemplative orders. Then the question arises, what do you mean by contemplation anyway? From the spiritual directory, I learned that the Holy Mass, the Divine Office, prayer and pious reading, which form the exercises of the contemplative life, occupy the major part of our day. It was a frigid and unsatisfying sentence. The phrase, pious reading, was a gloomy one, and somehow the thought that the contemplative life was something that was divided up into exercises was a sort that would have ordinarily depressed me. But I think I had come into the monastery fully resigned to the prospect of meeting that kind of language for the rest of my life. In fact, it's a good thing that I was resigned to it, for it is one of the tireless minor details of all religious life today, that one must receive a large proportion of spiritual nourishment dished up in the unseasoned jargon of the transliterated French. I had no way of saying what the contemplative life meant to me then, but it seemed to me that it should mean something more than spending so many hours a day in church and so many more hours somewhere else without having to go to bother preaching sermons or teaching school or writing books or visiting the sick. A few lines further on in the directory, 
There were some cautious words about mystical contemplation, which I was told was not required, but which God sometimes vouchsafed. That word, vouchsafe? It almost sounded as if the grace came to you dressed up in a crinoline. In fact, to my way of interpreting it, when a spiritual book tells you that infused contemplation is sometimes vouchsafed, the idea that you're supposed to get is this. Infused contemplation is all right for the saints, but as for you, hands off. The original French of the directory is not so icy as the translation, and the book goes on to add that monks can ask God for these graces, if they do so with a right intention, and that the Cistercian life should normally be a perfect preparation for them. In fact, the French edition also adds that the Cistercian has the duty of leading the kind of life that would dispose him to mystical prayer. And yet I was left with the impression that contemplation in a Trappist monastery was liable to be pretty much secundum quid, and that if I had a secret desire for what the lingo of the pious manuals would call the summits, I had better be cautious about the way I manifested it. Under other circumstances, the situation might have disturbed me, but now it didn't bother me at all. After all, it was largely a theoretical question anyway. All I needed to worry about was to do God's will, to enter the monastery if I were allowed to do so, and take things as I found them. And if God wanted me to do any of this vouchsafing, he could go ahead and vouchsafe, and all the other details would take care of themselves. As I was laying aside the directory to take up another small volume in pidgin English, someone knocked on the door. It was a monk I had not seen before, a rather burly man with white hair and an extremely firm jaw, who introduced himself as the master of the novices. I took another look at the determination in that jaw and said to myself, I bet he doesn't take any nonsense from novices either. But as soon as he started talking, I found it the Father Master was full of a most impressive simplicity and gentleness and kindness, and we began to get along together very well from that hour. He was not a man that stood on ceremony, and he would have nothing to do with the notorious technique of elaborately staged humiliations which gave La Trappe a bad name in the past. By those standards, he should have walked into the room, slammed the door with an insult, and then asked me, if I were entering the monastery in order to get away from the police. But I just sat down and said, Does silence scare you? I almost fell over in my eagerness to assure him that the silence not only did not scare me, but I was entranced with it and already felt myself to be in heaven. Aren't you cold in here? Why don't you shut the window? Is that sweater enough? I assured him with consummate bravery that I was as warm as toast, but he made me shut the window anyway. Of course, what had happened was that Father Fabian, who worked in the guest house that year, had been feeding me with horror stories about how cold it was when you got up in the morning and went creeping down to choir with your knees knocking together and your teeth chattering so loudly that you could hardly hear the prayers. So I was trying to get myself in trim for the ordeal by sitting with the windows open without a coat on. Have you ever learned any Latin? asked the Father Master. I told him all about Plotus and Tacitus, and he seemed satisfied. After that, we talked about many things. Could I sing? Did I speak French? What made me want to become a Cistercian? 
Had I ever read anything about the order? Had I ever read the life of St. Bernard by Dom El Bludi? And a lot of other things like that. It was such a pleasant conversation that I was getting to be more and more unwilling to unload the big shadowy burden that still rested on my conscience and tell this good Trappist all the things about my life before my conversion that had once made me think I could not possibly have a vocation to the priesthood. However, I finally did so in a few sentences. How long is it since you were baptized? asked the Father Master. Three years, Father. He did not seem to be disturbed. He just said that he liked the way I had told him all that there was to be told, and that he would consult Father Abbott about it, and that was all. I was still half expecting to be called down for a cross-examination by the first superior, but that never came. The fat boy from Buffalo and I waxed floors for the next couple of days and went down to the church and knelt at the benches in front of St. Joseph's altar while the monks chanted the office, and then came back to the guest house to eat our scrambled eggs and cheese and milk. At what Father Fabian would have described as our last meal, he slipped us each a bar of Nestle's chocolate and afterwards whispered to me, Tom, I think you're going to be very disappointed with what you see on the table when you go to the refectory this evening. That evening? It was the feast of St. Lucy and a Saturday. I went back to the room and nibbled on the chocolate and copied out a poem that I had just written by way of a farewell to Bob Lax and Mark Van Doren. Father Joaquin came and hid his face behind his hands to laugh when I told him what I was doing. A poem, he said, and hastened out of the room. He had come to get me to wax the floors some more, so presently the fat boy from Buffalo and I were on our knees again in the hall, but not for very long. The Father Master came up the stairs and told us to get our things together and follow him. So we put on our coats and got our bags and started downstairs, leaving Father Joaquim to finish waxing the floor by himself. The noise of our footsteps resounded in the great stairwell, down at the bottom of the flight by the door, under the sign that said, God Alone, there were a half-dozen local farmers standing around with their hats in their hands. They were waiting to go to confession. It was kind of an anonymous, abstract delegation bidding us farewell in the name of a civil society. As I passed one of them, a solemn, polite old man with a four-day growth of beard, I suddenly got a somewhat melodramatic impulse and leaned over toward him, whispering, Pray for me. He nodded gravely that he was willing to do that, and the door closed behind us, leaving me with the sense that my last act as a layman in the world still smacked of the old Thomas Merton, who had gone around showing off all over two different continents. The next minute we were kneeling by a desk of the man who had absolute temporal and spiritual authority over the monastery and everybody in it. This priest, who had been a Trappist for nearly fifty years, looked much younger than he was because he was so full of life and nervous energy. They had been fifty years of hard work which, far from wearing him out, had only seemed to sharpen and intensify his vitality. Dom Frederick was deep in a pile of letters which covered the desk before him, along with a mountain of other papers and documents. Yet you could see that this tremendous volume of work did not succeed in submerging him. He still had it under control. 
since I've been in the monastery, I have often had occasion to wonder by what miracle he manages to keep all of that under control. But he does. In any case, that day Father Abbott turned to us with just as much ease and facility as if he had nothing else whatever to do but to give the first words of advice to two postulants leaving the world to become Trappists. Each one of you, he said, will make the community either be better or worse. Everything you will do will have an influence upon others. It can be a good influence or a bad one. It all depends on you. Our Lord will never refuse you grace. I forget whether he quoted Father Faber. Reverend Father likes to quote Father Faber, and after all, it would be extraordinary if he failed to do so on that day. I have forgotten. We kissed his ring as he blessed us both and went out again. His parting shaft had been that we should be joyful but not dissipated, and that the names of Jesus and Mary should always be on our lips. At the end of the long dark hall we went into a room where three monks were sitting at typewriters, and we handed over our fountain pens and wristwatches and our loose cash to the treasurer and signed documents promising that if we left the monastery, we would not sue the monks for back wages for our hours of manual labor. Then we passed through the door into the cloister. Now I began to see the part of the monastery I had never seen, the long wing beyond the cloister in the back of the building where the monks actually live, where they gather in the intervals. It was a contrast to the wide-open, frigid formality of the cloister itself. To begin with, it was warmer. There were notice boards on the walls, and there was a warm smell of bread coming from the bakery, which was somewhere in those parts. Monks moved about with their cowls over their arms, waiting to put them on when the bell rang for the end of work. We stopped in the tailor's shop and were measured for our robes, then passed through the door to the novitiate. Father Masters showed us where the novitiate chapel was, and we knelt a moment before the Blessed Sacrament in that plain, whitewashed room. I noticed a statue of my friend St. Joan of Arc on one side of the door, and on the other was, of course, the little flower. And then we went down to the basement where all the novices were milling around in the clatter of wash basins, groping for towels with their eyes full of soap and water. Father Master picked the one who seemed to be the most badly blinded by suds, and I heard him tell him, to take care of me when we got to the church. That's your guardian angel, Father explained and added. He used to be a Marine. Part 3 Liturgically speaking, you could hardly find a better time to become a monk than Advent. You begin a new life. You enter into a new world at the beginning of a new liturgical year and everything that the church gives you to sing, every prayer that you say in and with Christ in his mystical body is a cry of ardent desire for grace, for help, for the coming of the Messiah, the Redeemer. The soul of the monk is a Bethlehem where Christ comes to be born, in the sense that Christ is born where his likeness is reformed by grace, and where his divinity lives in a special manner, with his Father and his Holy Spirit, by charity in this new incarnation, this other Christ. The Advent liturgy prepares that Bethlehem with songs and canticles of ardent desire. It is a desire all the more powerful in the spiritual order because, 
The world around you is dead. Life has ebbed to its dregs. The trees are stripped bare. The birds forget to sing. The grass is brown and gray. You go out to the field with mattocks to dig up the briars. The sun gives its light, as it were, in faint, intermittent explosions. Squibs, not rays, according to John Dunn's conceit in his Nocturnal on St. Lucy's Day. But the cold stones of the abbey church ring with a chant that glows with living flame, with clean, profound desire. It is an austere warmth, the warmth of Gregorian chant. It is deep beyond ordinary emotion, and that is one reason why you never get tired of it. It never wears you out by making a lot of cheap demands on your sensibilities. Instead of drawing you out into the open field of feelings where your enemies the devil and your own imagination and the inherent vulgarity of your own corrupted nature can get at you with their blades and cut you to pieces. It draws you within where you are lulled in peace and recollection and where you find God. You rest in him and he heals you with his secret wisdom. That first evening in choir, I tried to sing my first few notes of Gregorian chant with the worst cold I have ever had in my life. The fruit of my experiment in preparing myself for the low temperature of the monastery before I was even inside the place. It was the second Vespers of St. Lucy, and we chanted the Psalms of the Commune Virginum. But after that, the Capitulum was of the second Sunday of Advent, and presently the cantor intoned the lovely Advent hymn, Conditor Alme Siderum. What measure and balance and strength there is in the simplicity of that hymn. Its structure is mighty with a perfection that despises the effects of the most grand eloquent secular music and says more than Bach without even exhausting the whole range of one octave. That evening I saw how the measured tone took the old words of St. Ambrose and infused them with even more strength and suppleness and conviction and meaning that they had already had and made them flower before God in beauty and in fire flower along the stones and vanish into the darkness of the vaulted ceiling, and their echo died and left our souls full of grace and peace. When we began to chant the Magnificat, I almost wept, but that was because I was new in the monastery. In fact, it was precisely because of that I had reason to weep with thanksgiving and happiness as I croaked the words in my dry, hoarse throat in gratitude for my vocation, in gratitude that I was really there at last, really in the monastery and chanting God's liturgy with his monks. Every day from now on, the office would ring with the deep, impassioned cries of the old prophets, calling out to God to send the Redeemer. Veni Domine, noli tardare, relaxa fashionora plebis tue. And the monks took up the cry with the same strong voices and armed with the confidence of grace and God's own presence within them, they argued with him and chided him as his old prophets had done before. What is the matter with you, Domine? Where is our Redeemer? Where is the Christ you have promised us? Are you sleeping? Have you forgotten us that we should still be buried in our miseries and in the shadow of war and sorrow? Yet, if I had been stirred with a movement of feeling during that first evening in choir, 
I had little opportunity in those first days to enjoy what are commonly called consolations. Consolations cannot get a good hold on you when you are half stupefied with the kind of cold I had. And then there was the business of getting used to the thousand material details of monastic life. Now I saw the monastery from within, from the church floor, so to speak, and not from the visitor's gallery. I saw it from the novitiate wing, not from the shiny and well-heated guesthouse. Now I was face to face with monks that belonged not to some dream, not to some medieval novel, but to cold and inescapable reality. The community which I had seen functioning as a unity and all the power of that impressive and formal liturgical anonymity which clothes a body of men obscurely in the very personality of Christ himself, now appeared to me broken up into its constituent parts, and all the details, good and bad, pleasant and unpleasant, were there for me to observe at close range. By this time, God had given me enough sense to realize, at least obscurely, that this is one of the most important aspects of any religious vocation, the first and most elementary test of one's call to the religious life, whether as a Jesuit, Franciscan, Cistercian, or Carthusian, is the willingness to accept life in a community in which everybody is more or less imperfect. The imperfections are much smaller and more trivial than the defects and vices of people outside in the world, and yet somehow you tend to notice them more and feel them more because they get to be so greatly magnified by the responsibilities and ideals of the religious state through which you cannot help looking at them. People even lose their vocations because they find out that a man can spend 40 or 50 or 60 years in a monastery and still have a bad temper. Anyway, now that I was part of Gethsemane, I looked about me to see what it was really like. I was in a building with huge thick walls, some painted green, some white, and most of them with edifying signs and sentiments painted on them. If any man think himself to be a religious, not bridling his tongue, that man's religion is vain. And so on. I never quite discovered the value of those signs, because for my own part, as soon as I had read them once, I never noticed them again. They are there before me all the time, but they simply don't register in my mind. However, perhaps some people are still pondering them after years in the house. In any case, it is a Trappist custom. You find it practically everywhere in the order. What was important was not the thick, unheated walls, but the things that went on within them. The house was full of people, men hidden in white cowls and brown capes, some with beards, the lay brothers, others with no beards, but monastic crowns. There were young men and old men, and the old ones were in the minority. At a rough guess with all the novices we have in the house now, I think the average age of the community cannot be much over 30. There was, I could see, something of a difference between the community proper and the novices. The monks and the professed brothers were more deeply absorbed in things that the novices had not yet discovered. And yet, looking around at the novices, there was a greater outward appearance of piety in them. But you could sense that it was near the surface. It can be said, as a general rule, that the greatest saints are seldom the ones whose piety is most evident in their expression when they are kneeling at prayer. The holiest men in the monastery 
are almost never the ones uh, who get the exalted look on feast days in choir. The people who gaze up at Our Lady's statue with glistening eyes are very often the ones with the worst tempers. With the novices, their sensible piety was innocent and spontaneous, and it was perfectly proper to their state. As a matter of fact, I liked the novitiate at once. It was pervaded with enthusiasm and vitality and good humor. I liked the way they kidded one another in sign language, and I liked the quiet storms of amusement that suddenly blew up from nowhere and rocked the whole scriptorium from time to time. Practically all the novices seemed to be very enlightened and sincere about their duties in the religious life. They had been quick in catching on to the rules and were keeping them with spontaneous ease rather than hair-splitting exactitude. And the ingenuous good humor that welled up from time to time in the middle of all this made their faces all shine, like the faces of children, even though some of them were no longer young. You felt that the best of them were the simplest, the most unassuming, the ones who fell in with the common norm, without fuss and without any special display. They attracted no attention to themselves. They just did what they were told. But they were always the happiest ones, the ones most at peace. They stood at the mean between two extremes. On the one hand, there were one or two who exaggerated everything they did and tried to carry out every rule with scrupulousness that was a travesty of the real thing. They were the ones who seemed to be trying to make themselves saints by sheer effort and concentration, as if all the work depended on them and not even God could help them. But then there were the ones who did little or nothing to sanctify themselves, as if none of the work depended on them, as if God would come along one day and put a halo on their heads and it would be all over. They followed the others and kept the rule after a fashion, but as soon as they thought they were sick, they started pleading for all the mitigations that they did not already have, and the rest of the time they fluctuated between a gaiety that was noisy and disquieting and a sullen exasperation that threw a wet blanket over the whole novitiate. It was usually the ones that belonged to these two extremes that left and went back to the world. Those who stayed were generally the normal, good-humored, patient, obedient ones who did nothing exceptional and just followed the common rule. On Monday morning, I went to confession. It was Ember Week, and the novices all went to their extraordinary confessor, who was Father Odo that year. I knelt at the little open confessional and confessed with deep contrition that when Father Joachim had told me one day in the guest house to go and tell the fat boy from Buffalo to go down to the church for the canonical office of nun, I had failed to do so. Having unburdened my soul of this and other similar offenses, I got so mixed up at the unfamiliar Cistercian ritual that I was all ready to leave the confessional and run away as soon as Father Odo had finished the first prayer and before he had given me any absolution. In fact, I was already on my feet and about to walk away when he started talking to me, so I thought I had better stay. I listened to the things he had to say. He spoke very kindly and simply, and the burden of it was this. Who knows how many souls are depending on your perseverance in this monastery? Perhaps God has ordained that there are many in the world who will only be saved through your fidelity to your vocation. You must remember them if you are ever tempted to leave, 
and you probably will be tempted to leave. Remember all those souls in the world. You know some of them. Others, you may never know until you meet them in heaven. But in any case, you did not come here alone. By the time I was in the novitiate, I had no temptations to leave the monastery. In fact, never since I have entered religion have I ever had the slightest desire to go back to the world. But when I was a novice, I was not even bothered by the thought of leaving Gethsemane and going to any other order. I say I was not bothered by the thought. I had it, but it never disturbed my peace because it was never anything but academic and speculative. I remember how once Father Master questioned me on the subject, so I admitted, I've always liked the Carthusians. In fact, if I'd had a chance, I would have entered the Charter House rather than coming here. But the war made that impossible. You wouldn't get the penance there that we have here, he said. And then we began to talk of something else. That did not become a problem until after profession. The next morning, Father Master called me in at the end of work and gave me an armful of white woolen garments, telling me to put them on. Postulants used to receive the Oblate's habit a few days after their admission, one of those anomalous customs that grow up in isolated houses. It survived in Gethsemane until one of the recent visitations, and so within three days of my admission to the novitiate, I was out of my secular clothing and glad to get rid of it forever. It took me a few minutes to figure out the complications of the 15th century underwear the Trappists wear under their robes, but soon I was out of the cell in a white robe and scapular and a white cloth band tied around my waist with the white shapeless oblates cloak around my shoulders, and I presented myself to Father Master to find out my name. I had spent hours trying to choose a name for myself when I thought I was going to become a Franciscan, but now I simply took what I got. In fact, I'd been too busy to bother with such trivial thoughts, and so it turned out that I was to be called Frater Lewis. The fat boy from Buffalo was Frater Sylvester. I was glad to be Lewis rather than Sylvester, although I would probably never have dreamed of choosing either name for myself. Still, it would seem that the only reason why God wanted me to remember all my life that I had first sailed from France on the 25th of August was in order that I should realize at last that it was the feast of my patron saint in religion. That sailing was a grace. Perhaps ultimately my vocation goes back to the days I spent in France, if it goes back to anything in the natural order. Besides, I remember that I used rather frequently to pray at the altar of St. Louis and St. Michael the Archangel in the apse of St. Patrick's Cathedral in New York. I used to light candles to them when I got in trouble in those first days of my conversion. I went immediately into the scriptorium and took a piece of paper and printed on it Frater Maria Ludovicus and stuck it on the front of the box that was to represent all the privacy I had left, one small box in which I could keep a couple of notebooks full of poems and reflections and a volume of St. John of the Cross and Gilson's Mystical Theology of St. Bernard and the letters I would receive from John Paul at his RAF camp in Ontario, and from Mark Van Doren, and from Bob Lax. I looked out the window at the narrow, rocky valley beyond the novitiate parapet, 
and the cedar trees beyond, and the bare woods on the line of jagged hills. Hec requius mea in seculum seculi hic habitable quonium elegy eum. Part 4 In January, the novices were working in the woods near the lake, which the monks made by throwing a dam across a gully. The woods were quiet, and the axes echoed around the sheet of blue-gray water, sleek as metal among the trees. You are not supposed to pause and pray when you are at work. American Trappist notions of contemplation do not extend to that. On the contrary, you are expected to make some act of pure intention and fling yourself into the business and work up a sweat and get a great deal finished by the time it is over. To turn it into contemplation, you can occasionally mutter between your teeth, All for Jesus. All for Jesus. But the idea is to keep on working. That January, I was still so new that I had not flung myself into the complex and absurd system of meditation that I afterwards tried to follow out. And occasionally, I looked up through the trees to where the spire of the abbey church rose up in the distance, behind a yellow hill skirted with cedars, and a long blue ridge of hills for background. It was peaceful and satisfying, that scene, and I thought of a line from one of the gradual psalms. Montes in circuitu ejus et dominus in circuitu populi sui. Mountains are round about it, so the Lord is round about it. His people from henceforth, now and forever. It was true, I was hidden in the secrecy of his protection. He was surrounding me constantly with the work of his love, his wisdom, and his mercy. And so it would be, day after day, year after year, Sometimes I would be preoccupied with problems that seemed to be difficult and seemed to be great, and yet when it was all over, the answers I had worked out did not seem to matter much anyway, because all the while, beyond my range of vision and comprehension, God had silently and imperceptibly worked the whole thing out for me and had presented me with the solution. To say it better, he had worked the solution into the very tissue of my own life and substance and existence, by the wise, incomprehensible weaving of his providence. I was now preparing for the reception of the habit of novice, which would make me canonically a member of the order, and start me officially out on the progress toward vows. However, as my papers had not all come, no one knew exactly when I would be clothed in the white cloak. We were still waiting for a letter from the Bishop of Nottingham, whose diocese included Rutland and Oakland, my own school. It turned out that I was to have a companion in the reception of the habit, and not the fat boy from Buffalo, either. He left the monastery at the beginning of Lent, after having slumbered peacefully through the choral offices for several weeks. He returned home to Buffalo, and soon we heard that he was in the army. But no, my companion was to be, you might say, an old friend. One day, when we had come back from the lake and had taken off our work shoes and washed up. I was hurrying up the stairs from the basement when I ran into Father Master and a postulate coming around the corner. The fact that I was hurrying and ran into people only indicates that I was much less a contemplative than I thought I was. 
In any case, the postulant was a priest in a Roman collar, and when I took a second look at his face, I recognized those bony Irish features and the dark-rimmed spectacles, the high cheekbones and ruddy skin. It was the Carmelite with whom I had had all those conversations in the guesthouse garden in my retreat the Easter before, when we had discussed the relative merits of the Cistercians and the Carthusians. We both looked at each other with looks that said, You? Here? I did not actually say the words, but he did, and then he turned to Father Master and said, Father, here is a man who was converted to the faith by reading James Joyce. I don't think Father Master had heard of James Joyce. I had told the Carmelite that reading Joyce had contributed something to my conversion. So we received the habit together on the first Sunday of Lent. He received the name Frater Sacerdos. We stood together in our secular clothes in the middle of the chapter room. There was an 18-year-old novice with us making simple profession. Behind us was a table stacked with books that were to be given out to the community as their formal Lenten reading. Father Abbott was ill. Everybody had become aware of that by the way he had struggled through the gospel at the night office. He should have been in bed because, as a matter of fact, he had a bad case of pneumonia. However, he was not in bed. He was sitting on that rigid piece of woodwork euphemistically called a throne from which he presides in chapter. Although he could hardly see us, he delivered an impassioned exhortation, telling us with deep conviction that we were making a big mistake if we came to Gethsemane, expecting anything but the cross, sickness, contradictions, troubles, sorrows, humiliations, fasts, sufferings, and in general, everything that human nature hates. Then we went up the steps to his throne one by one, and he peeled off our coats. Exuat te dominus veterem hominem cum octibus suis. And helped by the cantor and father master, formally clothed us in the white robes we would be wearing as oblates, together with the scapulars and cloaks of full-fledged novices in the order. It cannot have been much more than two weeks after that that I was in the infirmary myself, not with pneumonia, but with influenza. It was the feast of St. Gregory the Great. I remember entering the cell assigned to me with a sense of secret joy and triumph, in spite of the fact that it had just been vacated two days before by Brother Hugh, whom we had carried out to the cemetery, lying in his open bier, with that grim smile of satisfaction the Trappist corpses have. My secret joy in entering the infirmary came from the thought, Now at last I will have some solitude, and I will have plenty of time to pray. I should have added, and do everything that I want to do without having to run all over the place answering bells. I was fully convinced I was going to indulge in all the selfish appetites that I did not yet know how to recognize as selfish because they appeared so spiritual in their new disguise. All my bad habits, disinfected, it is true, a formal sin, had sneaked into the monastery with me and had received the religious vesture along with me, spiritual gluttony, spiritual sensuality, and spiritual pride. I jumped into bed and opened the Bible at the Canticle of Canticles and devoured three chapters, closing my eyes from time to time and writing with raffish expectation for lights and voices harmonies, savors, unctions, and the music of angelic choirs. 
I did not get much of what I was looking for and was left with the vague disillusionment of the old days when I had paid down half a dollar for a bad movie. On the whole, the infirmary of a Trappist monastery is the worst place to go looking for pleasure. The nearest I came to luxury was in the purely material order, where I got plenty of milk and butter, and one day, perhaps the brother made some kind of mistake, I even got one sardine. If there had been two or three, I would have known it was a mistake. But since there was precisely one, I was inclined to think it was intentional. I got up every morning at four and served mass and received communion, and then the rest of the day I sat up in bed reading and writing. I said the office and went to the infirmary chapel to do the Stations of the Cross. And in the late afternoon, Father Gerard, the infirmarian, made sure I did not forget to meditate on the volume of Father Faber I had received as a Lenten book. But as soon as I began to get better, Father Gerard made me get up and sweep the infirmary and do other odd jobs. And when the Feast of St. Joseph came, I was glad to go down to church for the night office and sing a lesson in the jube. It must have been a surprise for all those who thought I had left the monastery, and when we were back in the infirmary, Father Gerard said, You sure can sing loud. Finally, on the Feast of St. Benedict, I picked up our blankets and went back to the novitiate, thoroughly satisfied to get off with no more than nine days of what Brother Hugh had called not Calvary, but Tabor. That was the difference between me and Brother Hugh, between one who had just begun his religious life and one who had just finished his with signal success. For to judge by the way people kept mentioning him in sermons, Brother Hugh had been truly a success as a Cistercian. I had not known him except by sight, and yet even that was enough to tell a great deal about him. I've never forgotten his smile. I don't mean the one he wore in the buyer, but the one he had when he was alive, which was quite a different matter. He was an old brother, but his smile was full of the ingenuousness of a child, and he had a great abundance of that one indefinite quality which everybody seems willing to agree in calling characteristically Cistercian, the grace of simplicity. What that means is often hard to say, but in Brother Hugh and the others like him, and there are not a few, it meant the innocence and liberty of soul that comes to those who have thrown away all preoccupation with themselves and their own ideas and judgments and opinions and desires and are perfectly content to take things as they come from the hands of God and through the wishes and commands of their superiors. It meant the freedom of heart that one can only obtain by putting his whole life into the hands of another, with a blind faith that God wills to use our superiors, our directors, as instruments for our guidance and the formation of our souls. From what I have heard, Brother Hugh had all that, and therefore he was also what they call a man of prayer. But this peculiar combination, a contemplative spirit and a complete submission to superiors who entrusted him with many distracting responsibilities around the monastery, sanctified Brother Hugh according to what is, as near as I can make out, the Cistercian formula. For it seems to me that our monasteries produce very few pure contemplatives. The life is too active. There is too much movement, too much to do. That is especially true of Gethsemane. It is a powerhouse, and not merely a powerhouse of prayer. In fact, 
there is an almost exaggerated reverence for work in the souls of some who are here. Doing things, suffering things, thinking things, making tangible and concrete sacrifices for the love of God. That is what contemplation seems to mean here. And I suppose the same attitude is universal in our order. It goes by the name of active contemplation. The word active is well chosen. About the second half of the compound, I am not so sure. It is not without a touch of poetic license. It is only in theory that our wills can be disinfected of all these poisons by the universal excuse of obedience. Yet, it has been the Cistercian formula ever since St. Bernard of Clairvaux and a score of Cistercian bishops and abbots in the Middle Ages. Which brings me back to my own life and to the one activity that was born in me and is in my blood. I mean writing. I brought all the instincts of a writer with me into the monastery, and I knew that I was bringing them too. It was not a case of smuggling them in. Father Master not only approved but encouraged me when I wanted to write poems and reflections and other things that came into my head in the novitiate. Already in the Christmas season, I had filled half an old notebook that belonged to my Columbia days with the ideas that came swimming into my head all through those wonderful feasts when I was a postulant. In fact, I had found the interval after the night office, in the great silence between 4 and 5.30 in the mornings of feast days, was a wonderful time to write verse. After two or three hours of prayer, your mind is saturated in peace and the richness of the liturgy. The dawn is breaking outside the cold windows. If it is warm, the birds are already beginning to sing. Whole blocks of imagery seem to crystallize out, as it were naturally in the silence and peace, and the lines almost write themselves. Well, that was the way it went, until Father Master told me I must not write poetry then. The rule would keep that hour sacred for the study of scripture and psalms. And as time went on, I found that this was even better than writing poems. What a time that is for reading and meditation, especially in the summer when you can take your book and go out under the trees. What shades of light and color fill the woods at Mary's end? Such greens and blues as you never saw. And in the east, the dawn sky is ablaze with fire where you might almost expect to see the winged animals of Ezekiel frowning and flashing and running to and fro. For six years, at that time of day, on feast days, I have been reading nothing but one or another of some three or four books. St. Augustine's Commentary on the Psalms, St. Gregory the Great's Moralia, St. Ambrose on some of the Psalms, or William of St. Theory on the Song of Songs. Sometimes I look at one or another of the fathers, or else read scripture simpliciter. As soon as I had entered into the world of these great saints and begun to rest in the Eden of their writings, I lost all desire to prefer that time for any writing of my own. Such books as these, and the succession of our offices, and all the feasts and seasons of the liturgical year, and the various times of sowing and planting and harvesting, and in general all the varied and closely integrated harmony of natural and supernatural cycles, that go to make up the Cistercian year, tend to fill a man's life to such overflowing satiety that there is usually no time, no desire for writing. After the first poems, I wrote the first Christmas, 
and one or two in January, and one at the purification, and one more in Lent, I was glad to be quiet. If there were no other reason for not writing, summer was simply too busy a season. As soon as Paschal time was well begun, we were planting peas and beans, and when it ended we were picking them. Then in May they cut the first crop of alfalfa in St. Joseph's Field, and from then on the novices were going out morning and afternoon in their long line, Indian file, straw hats on their heads, with pitchforks to hay fields in all quarters of the farm. From St. Joseph's we went to the upper bottom in the extreme northeast corner of the property in a hollow surrounded by woods behind the knoll called Mount Olivet. After that we were down in the lower bottom where I lifted up a shock of hay on the pitchfork and a black snake tumbled out of it. When the big wagons were loaded, two or three of us would ride back and help unload them in the cow barn or the horse barn or the sheep barn. That is one of the hardest jobs we have around here. You get inside the huge dark loft and the dust begins to swirl and the ones on the wagon are pitching up hay to you as fast as they can and you're trying to stow it back in the loft. In about two minutes the place begins to put on a very good imitation of purgatory from the sun beating down mercilessly on a tin roof over your head and the loft is one big black stifling oven. I wish I had thought a little about that cow barn back in the days when I was committing so many sins in the world. It might have given me pause. In June, when the Kentucky sun has worked up his full anger and stands almost at zenith, beating the clay furrows with his raging heat, it begins to be the season of the Cistercians' true penance. It is then that the little green flag begins to appear in the small cloister to announce that we no longer have to wear our cowls in the intervals and in the refectory. But even then, no matter how motionless you remain out under the trees, everything you have on is soaked in sweat, and the woods begin to sizzle with a thousand crickets, and their din fills the cloister court and echoes round the brick walls and the tiled floors of the cloister and makes the monastery sound like a gigantic frying pan standing over a fire. This is the time when the choir begins to fill with flies, and you have to bite your lip to keep your resolution about never swatting them, as they crawl over your forehead and into your eyes while you are trying to sing. And yet, it is a wonderful season, fuller in consolations than it is of trials. The season of the great feasts, Pentecost, Corpus Christi, when we pave the cloister with whole mosaics of flowers. The Sacred Heart, St. John the Baptist, St. Peter, and St. Paul. This is when you really begin to feel the weight of our so-called active contemplation, with all the accidental additions that it acquires at Gethsemane. You begin to understand the truth of the fact that the old Trappists of the 18th and 19th centuries saw in the exercises of contemplation, the choral office, and mental prayer, and so on, principally a means of penance and self-punishment. And so it is the season when novices give up and go back to the world. They give up at other times too, but summer is their hardest test. My friend Frater Sacerdos had already left in May. I remember a few days before he vanished from our midst, the novices were dusting the church, and he was mooning around St. Patrick's altar 
with a woeful expression and great sighs and gestures. His former name in religion as a Carmelite had been Patrick, and he was on the point of returning to the tutelage of the great apostle of Ireland. But I had no desire to leave. I don't think I enjoy the heat any more than anybody else, but with my active temperament, I can satisfy myself that all my work and all my sweat really meant something, because they made me feel as if I were doing something for God. The day Frater Sacerdos left, we were working in a new field that had been just cleared over near the western limits of the farm, behind Aden Nally's, and we came home in our long file over the hill past Nally's house, and the whole blue valley spread out before us, and the monastery and all the barns and gardens standing amid the trees below us under a big sweep of Kentucky sky, with those white, incomparable clouds. And I thought to myself, anybody who runs away from a place like this is crazy. But it was not as supernatural as I may have thought. It is not sufficient to love the place for the scenery. And because you feel satisfied that you are a spiritual athlete, and a not inconsiderable servant of God. Now, at the beginning of July, we were in the midst of the harvest, getting in the wheat. The big threshing machine was drawn up at the east end of the cow barn, and wagons loaded with sheaves were constantly coming in from all directions from the various fields. You could see the cellarer standing on top of the threshing machine, outlined against the sky, giving directions, and a group of lay brother novices were busily filling the sacks and tying them up and loading the trucks as fast as the clean new grain poured out of the machine. Some of the choir novices were taking the grain down to the mill and unloading the sacks and spilling the wheat out on the granary floor, but most of us were out in the fields. That year we had a phenomenal harvest, but it was always threatened with ruin by showers of rain so practically every day the novices went out to the fields and dismantled the shocks and spread the damp sheaves around on the ground in the sun to dry before to dry before they began to get full of mildew. And then we would put them back together again and go home, and there would be another shower of rain. But in the end, it was a good harvest anyway. How sweet it is out in the fields at the end of the long summer afternoons the sun is no longer raging at you, and the woods are beginning to throw long blue shadows over the stubble fields where the golden shocks are standing. The sky is cool, and you can see the pale half-moon smiling over the monastery in the distance. Perhaps a clean smell of pine comes down to you out of the woods, on the breeze, and mingles with the richness of the fields and of the harvest. And when the undermaster claps his hands at the end of work, and you drop your arms and take off your hat to wipe the sweat out of your eyes, in the stillness you realize how the whole valley is alive with the singing of crickets, a constant universal treble going up to God out of the fields, rising like the incense of the evening prayer to the pure sky. Laos perennis. And you take your rosary out of your pocket and get in your place in the long file, and start swinging homeward along the road with your boots ringing on the asphalt and the deep, deep peace in your heart. And on your lips, silently over and over again, the name of the Queen of Heaven, the Queen also of this valley. Hail Mary, full of grace, the Lord is with thee. 
and the name of her son for whom all this was made in the first place, for whom all this was planned and intended, for whom the whole of creation was framed to be his kingdom. Blessed is the fruit of thy womb, Jesus. Full of grace, the very thought over and over fills our own hearts with more grace. And who knows what grace overflows into the world from that valley, from those rosaries in the evenings when the monks are swinging home from work. It was a few days after the feast of the visitation, which is for me the feast of the beginning of all true poetry, when the Mother of God sang her Magnificat and announced the fulfillment of all prophecies and proclaimed the Christ in her and became the Queen of Prophets and of Poets. A few days after that feast, I got news from John Paul. For the last few months, he had been at a camp in the plains of the Canadian West in Manitoba. Day after day, he had been making long flights and doing bombing practice. And now... He had his sergeant's stripes and was ready to be sent overseas. He wrote that he was coming to Gethsemane before he sailed, but he did not say when. Part 5 The feast of St. Stephen Harding, the founder of the Cistercian Order, went by, and every day I was waiting to be called to Reverend Father's room and told that John Paul had come. By now the corn was high, and every afternoon... We went out with hoes to make war against our enemies, the morning glories in the cornfields. And every afternoon I would disappear into those rows of green banners and lose sight of everybody else, wondering how anybody would be able to find me if he were sent out there to bring me with news that my brother had come. Often you did not even hear the signal for the end of the work, and frequently one or two of the more recollected novices would get left in the cornfield, hoeing away diligently in some remote corner after everybody else had gone home. But I have discovered from experience that the rule in these things is that what you are expecting always comes when you are not actually expecting it. So it was one afternoon that we were working close to the monastery within the enclosure, weeding a patch of turnips, that someone made a sign for me to come to the house. I had so far forgotten the object of my expectations that it took me a moment or two before I guessed what it was. I changed out of work clothes and went straight to Reverend Father's room and knocked on the door. He flashed the please wait sign that has worked from a button on his desk, so there was nothing for it but to sit down and wait, which I did for the next half hour. Finally, Reverend Father discovered that I was there and sent for my brother, who presently came along the hall with Brother Alexander. He was looking very well and standing very straight, with his shoulders, which were always broad, now completely square. As soon as we were alone in his room, I began to ask him if he didn't want to get baptized. I sort of hoped I could be, he said. Tell me, I said, how much instruction have you had anyway? Not much. After I had questioned him some more, it turned out that not much was a euphemism for none at all. But you can't be baptized without knowing what it's all about, I said. I went back to the novitiate before Vespers, feeling miserable. He hasn't had any instruction, I said gloomily to Father Master. But he wants to be baptized, doesn't he? He says he does. Then I said, Don't you think I could give him enough instruction in the next few days to prepare him? 
and Father James could talk to him when he gets a chance. And of course, he can go to all the conferences of the retreat. One of the weekend retreats was just beginning. Take him some books, said Father Master, and talk to him. Tell him everything you can, and I'll go speak to Reverend Father. So the next day, I hurried up to John Paul's room with a whole armful of volumes purloined from the novitiate common box. And soon he had a room full of all kinds of books that different people had selected for him to read. If he wanted to read them all, he would have to stay in the monastery for six months. There was an orange pamphlet with an American flag on the cover called The Truth About Catholics. There were, of course, the Imitation of Christ and a New Testament. Then my contribution was the Catechism of the Council of Trent, and Father Robert's suggestion was the Faith of Millions. And Father James had come through with the story of a soul, the autobiography of the little flower. There were plenty of others besides, for Father Francis, who was guest master that year, was also a librarian. Perhaps he was the one who supplied the story of a soul, for he has great devotion to the little flower. But in any case, John Paul looked them all over. He said, Who's the little flower anyway? And he read the story of a soul all in one gulp. Meanwhile, I spent practically the whole of the morning and afternoon work periods talking my head off about everything I could think that had something to do with the faith. It was much harder work than my fellow novices were doing out there in the cornfield, and much more exhausting. The existence of God and the creation of the world did not give him any difficulty, so he went over that in two sentences. He had heard something about the Holy Trinity at the choir school of St. John the Divine, so I said that the Father was the Father, and the Son was the Father's idea of himself, and the Holy Ghost was the love of the Father for the Son, and that these three were one nature, and that nevertheless they were three persons, and they dwelt within us by faith. I think I talked more about faith and the life of grace than anything else, telling him all that I myself had found out by experience, and all that I sensed he wanted most to know. He had not come here to find out a lot of abstract truths. That was clear enough. As soon as I began to talk to him, I had seen awaken in his eyes the thirst that was hiding within him and that had brought him to Gethsemane, for he certainly had not come merely to see me. How well I recognized it, that insatiable thirst for peace, for salvation, for true happiness. There was no need for any fancy talk or of elaborate argument, no need to try and be clever or to hold his attention by tricks. He was my brother, and I could talk to him straight, in the words we both knew, and the charity that was between us would do the rest. You might have expected two brothers at such a time as this to be talking about the old days, and in a sense we were. Our own lives, our memories, our family, the house that had served us as a home, the things we had done in order to have what we thought was a good time, all this was indeed the background of our conversation, and in an indirect sort of way entered very definitely into the subject matter. It was so clearly present that there was no necessity to allude to it. The sorry, complicated past, with all its confusions and misunderstandings and mistakes. It was as real and vivid and present as the memory of an automobile accident in the casualty ward where the victims are being brought back to life. Was there any possibility of happiness without faith? 
without some principle that transcended everything we had ever known? The house in Douglaston, which my grandparents had built and which they maintained for 25 years, with the icebox constantly full and the carpets all clean and 15 different magazines on the living room table and a Buick in the garage and a parrot on the back porch screaming against the neighbor's radio was the symbol of a life that had brought them nothing but confusion and anxiety and misunderstanding and fits of irritation. It was a house in which Bonamaman had sat for hours every day in front of a mirror, rubbing cold cream into her cheeks as if she were going to go to the opera. But she never went to the opera, except perhaps the one she saw before her in dreams as she sat there in peaceless isolation among the pots of ointment. Against all this, we had reacted with everything our own generation could give us. And we had ended up doing, in the movies and in the cheap, amber-lit little bars of Long Island, or the noisier ones, fixed with chromium in the city, all that she had been doing at home. We never went to our own particular kind of operas, either. If a man tried to live without grace, not all his works were evil. That was a true certainty. He could do a lot of good things. He could drive a car. That was a good thing. He could read a book. He could swim. He could draw pictures. He could do all the things my brother had done at various times. Collect stamps, postcards, butterflies, study chemistry, take photography, fly a plane, learn Russian. All these things were good in themselves and could be done without grace. But there was absolutely no need to stop and ask him now whether, without the grace of God, any of those pursuits had come anywhere near to making him happy. I spoke about faith. By the gift of faith, you touch God. You enter into contact with his very substance and reality in darkness. Because nothing accessible, nothing comprehensible to our senses and reason can grasp his essence as it is in itself. But faith transcends all these limitations, and does so without labor. For it is God who reveals himself to us, and all that is required of us is the humility to accept his revelation, and accept it on the conditions under which it comes to us from the lips of men. When that contact is established, God gives us sanctifying grace. His own life, the power to love him, the power to overcome all the weaknesses and limitations of our blind souls and to serve him and control our crazy and rebellious flesh. Once you have grace, I said to him, you are free. Without it, you cannot help doing the things you know you should not do and that you know you don't really want to do. But once you have grace, you are free. When you are baptized, there is no power in existence that can force you to commit a sin. Nothing that will be able to drive you to it against your own conscience. And if you merely will it, you will be free forever, because the strength will be given you, as much as you need, and as often as you ask, and as soon as you ask, and generally long before you ask it too. From then on, his impatience to get to the sacrament was intense. I went to Reverend Father's room. We cannot baptize him here, of course, he said but it might be done at one of the parishes near here. Do you think there is a chance of it? I will ask Father James to talk to him and tell me what he thinks. By Saturday afternoon, I had told John Paul everything I knew. I had got to the sacramentals and indulgences 
and then gone back and given him an explanation of that notion so mysterious to some outside the church, the Sacred Heart. After that, I stopped. I was exhausted, and I had nothing left to give him. And he sat calmly in his chair and said, Go on, tell me more. The next day was Sunday, the Feast of St. Anne. After chapter, in the long interval before High Mass, I asked Father Master if I could go over to the guest house. Reverend Father told me your brother might be going to New Haven to get baptized. I went to the novitiate and prayed. But after dinner, I found out that it was true. John Paul was sitting in his room, quiet and happy. It was years since I had seen him so completely serene. Then I realized obscurely that in those last four days, the work of eighteen or twenty years of my bad example had been washed away and made good by God's love. The evil that had been done by my boasting and showing off and exulting in my own stupidity had been atoned for in my own soul, at the same time as it had been washed out of his, and I was full of peace and gratitude. I taught him how to use a missile and how to receive communion, for it had been arranged that his first communion would be at Reverend Father's private mass the following day. The next morning, all through chapter, the obscure worry that John Paul would get lost and not be able to find his way down to the chapel of Our Lady of Victories had been haunting me. As soon as chapter was over, I hurried to the church ahead of Reverend Father and entered the big empty building and knelt down. John Paul was nowhere in sight. I turned around, and at the end of the long nave, with its empty choir stalls, high up in the empty tribune, John Paul was kneeling all alone, in uniform. He seemed to be an immense distance away. And between the secular church where he was and the choir where I was was a locked door. And I couldn't call out to him to tell him how to come down the long way round the guest house. And he didn't understand my sign. At that moment, there flashed into my mind all the scores of times in our forgotten childhood when I had chased John Paul away with stones from the place where my friends and I were building a hut. Now, all of a sudden, here it was all over again, a situation that was externally the same pattern. John Paul standing confused and unhappy at a distance which he was not able to bridge. Sometimes the same image haunts me now that he is dead, as though he is standing helpless in purgatory, depending more or less on me to get him out of there, waiting for my prayers. But I hope he's out by now. Father Master went off to get him, and I started lighting the candles on the altar of Our Lady of Victories, and by the time the Mass started I could see out of the corner of my eye that he was kneeling there at one of the benches, and so we received communion together, and my work was done. The next day he was gone. I went to see him off at the gate after chapter. A visitor gave him a ride to Bardstown. As the car was turning around to start down the avenue, John Paul turned around and waved. It was only then that his expression showed some possibility that he might be realizing, as I did, that we would never see each other on earth again. Fall came in the great tricenary in September when all the young monks have to recite ten psalters for the dead. It is a season of bright, dry days and plenty of sun and cool air and high cirrus clouds, and the forest is turning rusty and blood color 
and bronze along the jagged hills. Then morning and afternoon we go out to cut corn. St. Joseph's field had been long finished. The green stalks had gone into the silo. Now we were working through the vast stony fields in the middle and lower bottoms, hacking our way through the dry corn with each blow of the knife cracking like a rifle shot. It was as if those glades had turned into shooting galleries and we were all firing away with twenty twos. And behind us in the wide avenues that opened in our wake, the giant shocks grew up and the two novices that came last garroted them with a big rope and tied them secure with twine. Around November, when the corn husking was nearly finished, and when the fat turkeys were gobbling loudly in their pen, running from one wire fence to the other in dark herds under the gloomy sky, I got news from John Paul in England. First, he had been stationed in Bournemouth, from which he sent me a postcard that showed some boarding houses I recognized along the West Cliff. It was only ten years since we had spent a summer there, but the memory of it was like something unbelievable, like another life, as if there was such a thing as transmigration of souls. After that, he was sent somewhere in Oxfordshire. His letters arrived with little rectangles neatly cut out of them here and there. When he wrote, I am going into blank and seeing the blank and the bookstores, it was easy enough for me to insert Oxford in the first hole and colleges in the other, since the postmark read Banbury. Here he was still in training, I could not tell how soon he would get over to the actual fighting in Germany. Meanwhile, he wrote that he had met a girl whom he described, and it soon turned out that they were going to get married. I was glad on account of the marriage, but there was something altogether pathetic about the precariousness of it. What chance was there that they would ever be able to have a home and live in it the way human beings were supposed to do? Christmas came to the monastery, bringing with it the same kind of graces and consolations as the year before, only more intense. On the feast of St. Thomas the Apostle, Reverend Father had allowed me to make my vows privately to him, more than a year before public profession would be permissible. If I had been able to make ten different vows every day, I would not have been able to express what I felt about the monastery and the Cistercian life. And so 1943 began and the weeks hastened on toward Lent. Lent means, among other things, no more letters. The monks neither received mail nor write it in Lent and Advent. And the last news I had before Ash Wednesday was that John Paul was planning to get married about the end of February. I would have to wait until Easter to find out whether or not he actually did. I had fasted a little during my first Lent the year before, but it had been broken up by nearly two weeks in the infirmary. This was my first chance to go through the whole fast without any mitigation. In those days, since I still had the world's idea about food and nourishment and health, I thought the fast we have in Trappist monasteries in Lent was severe. We eat nothing until noon, and then we get the regular two bowls, one of soup and the other of vegetables, and as much bread as we like. And then in the evening, there is a light collation, a piece of bread and a dish of something like applesauce two ounces of it. However, if I had entered a Cistercian monastery in the 12th century, or even some Trappist monasteries of the 19th, for that matter, I would have had to tighten my belt and go hungry until four o'clock in the afternoon, and there was nothing besides that one meal, no collation, no frustulum. 
Humiliated by this discovery, I find that the Lenten fast we now have does not bother me. However, it is true that now in the morning work periods, I have a class in theology instead of going out to break rocks on the back road or split logs in the woodshed as we did in the novitiate. I expected to make a big difference because swinging a sledgehammer when you have an empty stomach is apt to make your knees a little shaky after a while. At least that's what it did to me. Even in the Lent of 1943, however, I had some indoor work for part of the time since Reverend Father had already put me to translating books and articles from French. And so after the conventual mass, I would get out book and pencil and papers and go work at one of the long tables in the novitiate scriptorium filling the yellow sheets as fast as I could, while another novice took them and typed them as soon as they were finished. In those days, I even had a secretary. Finally, the long liturgy of penance came to its climax in Holy Week, with the terrible cry of the lamentations once more echoing in the dark choir of the Abbey Church, followed by four hours, thunder of the Good Friday Psalter in the chapter room, and the hush of the monks going about the cloisters in bare feet, and the long, sad chant that accompanies the adoration of the cross. What a relief it was to hear the bells once more on Holy Saturday. What a relief to wake up from the sleep of death with a triple alleluia. Easter that year was as late as it could possibly be, the 25th of April, and there were enough flowers to fill the church with the intoxicating smell of the Kentucky spring, a wild and rich and heady smell of flowers, full and sweet. We came from our light five-hour sleep into a church that was full of warm night air and swimming in this rich luxury of odors, and soon began that Easter invitatory that is nothing short of gorgeous in its exultation. How mighty they are, those hymns and those antiphons of the Easter office, Gregorian chant that should by rights be monotonous because it has absolutely none of the tricks and resources of modern music. It is full of variety and infinitely rich because it is subtle and spiritual and deep and lies rooted far beyond the shallow level of virtuosity and technique, even in the abysses of the spirit and the human soul. Those Easter alleluias, without leaving the narrow range prescribed by the eight Gregorian modes, have discovered color and warmth and meaning and gladness that no other music possesses. Like everything else, Cistercian, like the monks themselves, these antiphons, by submitting to the rigor of a rule that would seem to destroy individuality, have actually acquired a character that is unique and unparalleled. It was into the midst of all this that news from England came. There had been a letter from John Paul among the two or three that I found under the napkin in the refectory at noon on Holy Saturday. I read it on Easter Monday, and it said that he had been married more or less according to plan, and had gone with his wife to the English lakes for a week or two, and that after that he had been stationed at a new base, which put him into the fighting. He had been once or twice to bomb something somewhere, but he did not even give the censor a chance to cut anything out, you could see at once that there was a tremendous change in his attitude toward the war and his part in it. He did not want to talk about it. He had nothing to say. And from the way he said that he didn't want to talk about it, you could see that the experience was terrific. John Paul had last come face to face with the world that he and I helped to make. On Easter Monday afternoon, I sat down to write him a letter and cheer him up a little if I could. 
The letter was finished, and it was Easter Tuesday, and we were in choir for the conventual mass when Father Master came to me and made the sign for Abbot. I went out to Reverend Father's room. There was no difficulty in guessing what it was. I passed the Pieta in the corner of the cloister and buried my will and my natural affections and all the rest in the wounded side of the dead Christ. Reverend Father flashed the sign to come in, and I knelt by his desk and received his blessing and kissed his ring, and he read me the telegram that Sergeant J.P. Merton, my brother, had been reported missing in action on April 17th. I've never understood why it took them so long to get the telegram through. April 17th was already ten days ago, the end of Passion Week. Some more days went by. Letters of confirmation came, and finally, after a few weeks, I learned that John Paul was definitely dead. The story was simply this. On the night of Friday the 16th, which had been the Feast of Our Lady of Sorrows, he and his crew had taken off in their bomber with Mannheim as their objective. I never discovered whether they crashed on the way out or the way home, but the plane came down in the North Sea. John Paul was severely injured in the crash, but he managed to keep himself afloat and even tried to support the pilot who was already dead. His companion had managed to float their rubber dinghy and pull him in. He was very badly hurt, maybe his neck broken. He lay in the bottom of the dinghy in delirium. He was terribly thirsty. He had asked for water, but they didn't have any. The water tank had broken in the crash, and the water was all gone. It did not last too long. He had three hours of it, and then he died. Something of the three hours of the thirst of Christ, who loved him and died for him many centuries ago, and had been offered again that very day, too, on many altars. His companions had more of it to suffer, but they were finally picked up and brought to safety. But that was some five days later. On the fourth day, they had buried John Paul at sea. Sweet brother, if I do not sleep, my eyes are flowers for your tomb. And if I cannot eat my bread, my fast shall live like willows where you died. If in the heat I find no water for my thirst, my thirst shall turn to springs for you, poor traveler. Where, in what desolate and smoky country, lies your poor body, lost and dead? And in what landscape of disaster has your unhappy spirit lost its road? Come, in my labor find a resting place, and in my sorrows lay your head. Or rather take my life and blood, and buy yourself a better bed. Or take my breath and take my death, and buy yourself a better rest. When all the men of war are shot and flags have fallen into dust, your cross and mine shall tell men still Christ died on each for both of us. For in the wreckage of your April, Christ lies slain, and Christ weeps in the ruins of my spring, the money of whose tears shall fall into your weak and friendless hand and buy you back to your own land the silence of whose tears shall fall like bells upon your alien tomb. Hear them and come, 
ในคอยอยู่